0: Okay, everyone. Yes, sir. If you are under sixth grade, correct? If you are in a grade, if you are in sixth grade or lower, you can follow Mrs. Olin Zalen or Mrs. Oswald downstairs. If you are above sixth grade, you may want to sit slightly closer. (laughs) Because because I don't wanna have to yell. See, it's not an age joke. And there's plenty of room, so if you were sitting the wrong way, you can... uh, Turn around or sit and... Nope, you don't need anything. This is all self-contained. Just a smile and a good attitude. That's the price. (laughs) So if that's too steep for you... Well, there's the door. (laughs) Okay, very good. The way this is going to work uh, is that this evening and tomorrow evening are two parts of the same topic, and you already sort of know what the topic is, Christian vocations in the household. Um, So the point of this is to talk about, firstly, who you are, and then in addressing who you are we have to also address the question what do you do? And both of these questions we're asking and attempting to answer within the context of the Christian household. We're keeping it within that smaller unit. There's a lot to say about that. Uh, And the primary texts that we'll be looking at tonight and tomorrow night are the same primary texts that the kids are going to be looking at downstairs. And this was not done accidentally. You'll find that very little in course planning like this is done accidentally. So I'd like to start off by encouraging you to uh, follow the vein of what this entire Vacation Bible School class is about, and uh, speak, speak with your children in the car on the way home, at home, tomorrow morning over breakfast. Talk with them about the narratives that we're looking at, the primary texts, and if your children are older and grown and out of the house, talk with each other about it. Uh, because the point of this is to talk about the household, the Christian household, what it is, what it does, how it functions, what you do, but not in the form of a lecture. This isn't a college lecture where you come and you take notes and then you go home and come back again and there'll be a test and then you can be done. This is a very, very, very brief crash course uh, in something that is a lifelong pursuit and endeavor that involves more people than just your immediate neighbor here. So that's my encouragement to you. Uh, If if you want to call it homework, you're welcome to call it homework. Talk with your children about what they learned, what their narrative was, uh, and have a family discussion about it, okay? So the main thing that we're going to look at today, like I said, this is split into two parts, is your first and primary identity, which is not as father, mother, husband, or wife, or for the kids downstairs, son, daughter, brother, or sister. Uh, Your primary identity is as a baptized Christian. So this evening, we're not talking so much about how you behave within the household as much as we're talking about how do you behave first and foremost according to the transformation of life that you have undergone at the font. You have to be first a child of God before you can begin to understand your responsibilities as a child of man. So that's uh, what we're gonna be discussing this evening, how you are a child of God, what that does to you and in particular what it means for the household, for um, the marital relationship, and the relationship between parents and children in the household. So one of the things you're going to be hearing quite a bit is the word vocation. And I want to define vocation for you now, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what vocation is. And uh, I want to set the record straight so we're all on the same page when we talk about it this evening. Often, when you hear vocation, your first thought is what? Job. Your job, right. So, what's your vocation? You work at grain the elevator. grain elevator. That's your vocation. But when we talk about the Christian life and when we use vocation in the Christian sense, I don't really care what your occupation is. Vocation is something different. It isn't your job. And I, I would argue that it's really not even your place in life. That's a somewhat better definition of vocation. What is your place in life? Or what I would call a station. What is your station? Your station is as worker, as husband, as wife, as son or as daughter or as father or mother. Those are stations in life. And you can have many stations uh, at which you work and through which you work. If you you want to understand this idea of stations, all you have to do is look at the small catechism and look at the table of duties, which is what we're going through in the congregation at prayer right now for the uh, catechism excerpt through the summer. The table of duties addresses the different stations of life. Uh, So there's uh, two pastors, two bishops, pastors, and preachers. Specific things if your station is as a bishop, a pastor, or a preacher. Specific things for if your station is as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a wife, as a worker, as a manager. All of these things are stations that scripture addresses and tells you, hey, listen, if you are, first and foremost, a child of God, then when you are placed into this station, here is how you are to behave. So station is a good thing to keep in mind, but for this evening and for tomorrow evening, we're more concerned with vocation. So... The way that I would encourage you to think about vocation is not so much as a station, not so much something that is static, uh, but that is, is a responsibility. What is your vocation? What is your responsibility according to the new life? And we'll talk about new life versus old life in a little bit here, but vocation as your responsibility according to the new life that you have received and all of the expected actions that accompany this responsibility. So that when you talk about what your vocation is, your vocation is always as baptized child of God. And then your vocation as baptized child informs your different stations. What is your responsibility? That is part of your vocation as baptized, okay? So um, in baptism, you know that that a Christian is a new creature, that you were something else, and now you are something new. This is something we'll talk about in a little bit, Uh, as well. I don't have the fancy handouts that I would have for this if I were teaching something like the catechumenate uh, during the fall and winter. uh, That is a pretty handout heavy class. Because I like the intimate setting and I like being able to hand something out to you that we can look at and laugh about and discuss right there in class. But one of the handouts that I use is a handout that I received when I was in college studying my, in my first semester of Greek. And it was from an old book from the 1800s of Greek grammar, and my TA at the time uh, gave this out to us as a handout. It was just a, a little sheet that had all of the different prepositions in Greek and then a little picture that showed you what was going on with that preposition. Uh, And it was the adventures of the boy and the lion. And it's really funny to look at, because they're kind of cartoon-like. So the boy is near the lion, the boy is around the lion, and there's all these different pictures. And the, the prepositions that I use when we talk about baptism are into and in. And those matter because of the transformative and non-static nature of one of the prepositions versus the static and normative uh, uh, context of the other. So, in is a static word. You are all right now in. And I know that you are all in because you're sitting down within these four walls not moving. You are in. If, however, you were moving across the threshold, you would be into this room, going into the room. It's, there's motion. It's a non-static preposition. And this matters because that's what baptism is. It's motion. And you get that. This is one reason why I like this handout and this image so much. In the lion is a lot different than into the lion. In one, the lion lays in the sun with a big fat belly. In the other one, there's boy's legs sticking up out of his mouth as he slowly goes into the lion. Uh, so baptism is a transformative thing. You are not the same when you come out the other end. You are going in to Christ, as St. Paul writes. There's motion from one place to another, and uh, As it happens, your motion is from death to life. So it's a pretty big transformation. And the reason that it matters that it's transformation, that it's motion, is because scripture is all about motion. It's always the same motion, death to life, from death into life, from nothing into Christ. So it's full of this motion, always the same motion, and that's why it matters. You're on a journey. Christ says that you are following the way. Christians were not always called Christians, they were called disciples of the way. And if you are on the way, it is assumed that you are also moving that there is a transformation taking place, that once you start on this way, you're not going to be the same. And that is true in baptism. So, before we go on any further, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about something called the three estates. Because this is going to inform the rest of the discussion for tonight and for tomorrow. The three estates is a way of looking at life uh, through your vocation as a baptized Christian and uh, through your station within that life. The three estates really boil down to the three spheres of life wherein the new vocation of Christian life and living are given and exercised. And there are different emphases on where and how it's given and especially where and how it's uh, emphasized and fulfilled. Uh, the The reason that we talk about these three estates is because these are kind of how Christians, but especially Lutherans, see the world to be organized by God. So that if God is going around saying, well, how do I wanna structure all of this? Well, let's do it in three. Nobody was ever hurt by the number three. So we'll, we'll create these spheres of life wherein my new children, <clears throat> excuse me, newly transformed, can fulfill their vocation as newly transformed, baptized children. And don't worry, I'll be the one to govern it all, says the Lord. I will establish it and I will look over it. So uh, the three stations are these. First, the ecclesia. I'll give you the Latin. The ecclesia, the economia, and the politica. I just want to make sure I got the politica right. So the politica really is the one that matters the least. Because that is the political sphere. And what comprises the political sphere is civil government and uh, citizens of the secular realm. This is the place where God guides you in your life. So uh, when we talk about the fourth commandment, you know, why are you to honor your father and your mother and all other authorities? What? Okay, sure, it's a command, but it—I mean—it has, there has to be more than that. Because God doesn't make arbitrary commands. So he doesn't just say, I'm the Lord, and you're going to do what I say, doggone it, and I don't care if you know why or if you, if you think it's good for you or not. Now go jump through that flaming hoop. You know? that, the commandments are not given for that purpose, so you're not wrong. It is a command, <clears throat> but I'm looking for something a little more, why, think about about it this way, why is it that God gives that command? To honor your father and mother and all authorities. God is our Yes, you're a lot warmer here. Because you obey your earthly authorities because they're worth it? No, because they are established by God. Now, I I talked about this in Bible class, so I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot here. It doesn't matter if you voted for your earthly authorities. Nobody votes for their parents. You you inherit your parents as they are. Faults and all. But it doesn't matter. Because you don't love them and obey them because they're worth it or because they've earned it. And it's the same with the relationship uh, between parents and their children. You don't wait until your child earns your love. You don't wait until they've done something so fantastic that you can finally tell them, you know what, I think now... I finally love you. You built that shed in the backyard all by yourself, by hand, with no power tools. Now you've earned my love. Most of the time, well, maybe, not, maybe that's harsh. I'll, I retract that. A lot of the time, you'll look at your child, or in some cases, you have looked at your child, and thought to yourself, boy, it's really not worth it being a parent This is a lot of work, and I'm not seeming really to get much out of this. And I'm kind of stuck doing this because I have these kids now, and I can't just kick them to the curb, but doggone it, they're really a pain in the rear. You don't love your children because they earn your love or because they're, quote-unquote, worth it. You love them because the Lord has given them to you. You love them because of the fact that they are. You love them because the Lord loves them, just like you honor and respect parents because the Lord has established them. Uh, So that's that's the thing here. The Lord is going to guide you through the authorities that he has established. Uh, In the the politica, the society sphere, the political sphere, uh, laws are created uh, and enforced, to keep peace and good order, and to promote the welfare of the state. And the uh, society exists as well to punish evil. So, uh, in the Lutheran tradition, we talk a lot about the government being the sword. The sword of the Lord. They've given the power to execute justice, and we call that the sword. Okay, so. This matters the least because it doesn't pertain as much to the discussion at hand but also because if you want to think about what the original structure of creation was, there's really no need for civil government. Uh, There's no need for rulers. There's no need for commandments that tell people to obey authorities. Why? Exactly. In a perfect world, there's no need to be governed. There's no need to punish evil because there's no evil to punish. Because everyone's of like mind and wants to get along and doesn't want to go mess with their neighbor. So, <clears throat> in the original scheme of how things are, this is really not something that matters. It comes to matter after the fall. So, but we have to talk about it because there's three of them. So, here are the two that really matter. The first one is the ecclesia, the church. This is the primary one. Number one, the sphere of authority, the three estates. Number one, the church. The church consists of the priestly office and the laity, which is just a fancy way of saying pastors and, his, and their parishioners. That's the church. And the responsibilities of the church are these. First, administration and reception of the sacraments. So I have a responsibility to administer them, you have a responsibility to receive them. That matters for the discussion at hand. To preach and to hear the word of God. I have the responsibility to preach and you have the responsibility to hear direct toward and receive the tangible promises of God. I am to direct you to them, you are to receive them. And if we wanna boil the tangible promises of God down to one word, it is this, the gospel. I suppose that's two, I don't count the article. The gospel is the tangible promises of God, the touch of Jesus, physically, That is the gospel. In word, in absolution, in body and blood, bread and wine, in water. This is what the gospel is. And then finally, here's where it matters the most. The the final big responsibility of the church is to create, to direct, and to inform the life of the economia which is the second sphere, and that is the household. And we'll talk more about the relationship between these two tomorrow. But there are not the responsibilities in place that many people think are in place. So the church's job is to do what I'm doing right now, to teach, to preach, and to inform and direct the economia the household, to talk about parents, to talk about spouses, to talk about marriage and life in the home, and uh, hopefully instill the qualities that the church would like to see and give you the strength and encouragement to fulfill your vocations within the stations that you possess in the household. So then, let's look at what the responsibilities of the household are. Firstly, what consists of a household? Multiple stations, the father, the mother, and the children. That is, those are the, the primary units of the household. And then you can sort of mix and match and take them across and say, well, the father is the father, but he's also the husband the mother is the mother to the children but not to the husband she is wife to the husband so there's sort of subheadings of relationships and stations within there but but these are the primary units of the household of the uh, economia the father the mother and the children together and that's important i mean some uh, In this day and age, it's almost too much to say that a household should consist of a father and a mother with their children. Because there are a number of very broken homes. But in the perfect world and ideally, that's what what the Christian household looks like, father, mother, children. And then each one of them has their own responsibilities. How do you act as a husband and a father? How do you act as a mother and a wife? How do you act as a child? That's this way. What's your relationship with your parents? And it's this way. What's your relationship with your brothers and your sisters? All right, so this is, these are the primary responsibilities of the household. First, Christian education and upbringing. This is a big one because you don't expect that the responsibility of the home is Christian education because we're in a day and age where everyone considers that to be the responsibility of the church. But it isn't. The church can't do it. That's what we'll talk about tomorrow. So that's one of the responsibilities of the household. Here's another one. Foster an instilled love of the Lord and foster a fervent desire for those tangible promises. The church is going to give them to you, and the church is going to talk about them to you the whole time that you're in here. All of those two hours a week that you're here, we're going to give them to you and talk about them. But let's break down your week, shall we? In the grand scheme of how much time you spend in a week, in the grand scheme of how many hours there are in a week, how much is two hours? It's not that much. So for the whole time that you're here, we'll do our very best to tell you all about them. You want to talk to me about the tangible promises of God? Well, buddy, grab a chair, because once you get me started, you'll never leave the building. But once you do leave the building, that's it. Until the next time you come back in and want to talk about it again. And you can come back in any time during the week, but the point is that for all of the time that you aren't in this place, church has to keep on going. And what the church and what the Lord would like in this sphere structure, these three estates, is that when you walk out of those doors, church continues within the household. That you talk, you receive the tangible promises of God at the altar, and then you leave and you go, boy, I can't I can't stop thinking about those things. That was really great. When do I get to have them next? Hey, kids, that was pretty great, wasn't it? Let's talk about that. Why is that so great? You want those too, don't you? Yeah, well, let's make sure we go back and get those. And that that's your whole week. And then you're back again and you see me and I say, hey, I want to tell you about these promises of God. And you say, oh boy, great, I I brought my kids. Let's all sit down and talk about it. And then you come and you get them and then you go home and then you spend the rest of that next week going, boy, that was really great. Let's talk some more about that. Let's think more about that. Let's Let's get closer to that. You know, we should really go there again sometime. And that's the cycle that you're here receiving these gifts and then when you walk out the door that it doesn't end, that it continues in the household because there's, Uh, this idea of fostering a love for it. And it can't happen if church is that place where we go once a week, where we don't talk about it ever in the household. We just say, well, no, you've got to get up on Sunday because you will be in church. (laughs) So if the only thing that you ever say is you will be in church on Sunday but you never talk about it again the rest of the week, then it's a drag because you're not fostering or instilling a love for it. Now, sometimes getting your kids to go to church is like the law. It is like saying, I don't care how late you stayed up. I'll see you in half an hour in that building in the front pew. Uh, But other times it's like this. Hey, it's been a rough week. You know what we could really use we could really use a little bit of Jesus, couldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's head on over. Okay? The point of this is, is really you know, boiled down in this fostering and instilling a love. It isn't a requirement. I mean, it is to a certain degree, but when you look at what the third commandment really means to remember the Sabbath day, it's not this... Get in that building! That isn't what it is. It's this. Hey, hey, come on into this building. Look at what's here. You don't wanna stay out there. Come on, trust me. There's something really good in here. So, uh, it's about loving. You don't have to, you get to. That's something that I say quite a bit. You, You don't have to, you get to. Oh, do I have to go to church? No, you get to go to church. And this is, the, this is the slightly comedic example that I love so much. You don't look at your husband or your wife and say, ugh, do I have to tell him or her that I love them? Do I have to give them a kiss? Ugh. It's not a question of what you must do. It's a question of what you get to do. It's a privilege that you have that nobody else... See, gentlemen, this this is the question that will show you how much of a privilege it is that you get to give your wife a hug and a kiss and tell her that you love her. What would you do if you looked in and some other man was kissing your wife? You go out to the gun locker. Why? Because it's your privilege to be able to do that. Nobody else gets what you have. It's a privilege. You get to do that. It's not a mandate. It's something that's enjoyable. Now, the other, here are some other things uh, for the economia, for the household. Teach moral responsibility in day-to-day life. This is how the household interacts with the political sphere. It isn't the government's job to teach you how to be a good citizen. It's your household's job to teach you that. And again, that's something we'll talk about tomorrow, education within the home. Uh, And then finally, to love and cherish one another unto death. That brothers and sisters love each other and strive not to fight, but to love each other instead. Strive, I say, because you won't quite get there. Don't worry, I have one younger brother and two younger sisters. I know how that goes. Okay. So you strive toward it. Husband and wife strive to love one another to the best of their ability, even when he leaves dirty socks on the ground and when she nags you about them. You strive to love your children, even when they're unlovable, even when they throw a baseball through the front window or dig up the new plants you just planted or drive the ATV around where they're not supposed to on your new grass. Now, I don't know any personal stories. These are just examples I'm pulling out of a hat. So when I see you turning and looking at people, (laughs) okay? So, how do you do this then? That's really the question. How do you do it? How do you live? in these spheres? How do you fulfill a vocation? How do you even know what your vocation is? Well, this is the answer. You are a child of the Lord. You are a child of God. So first and foremost, you have to root your identity in that. Root your identity in being a child of the Lord in something very physical, which is, of course, where is your sonship, rooted. Why can you say you're a child of God? Exactly, because you have been baptized. Like I said earlier, sort of prefatorily, it is transformative. You were one thing, and then you walked down into those waters, and you came up, and you were something completely new, transformed creature. You have a new identity. You're not the old person you were, you're somebody new, you have a new vocation, you have a new responsibility to live according to a new identity, and you're going to be given stations, and this identity will inform all of your stations, it will tell you this is how to live. So uh, to talk about this then, our primary text for this evening is in Genesis, and you don't have to run and get a Bible, I'll read all of this to you. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17 and jump around a little bit. But you'll already know this. It should be familiar to you. This is Abraham. And if you're, if you're tracking with me and if you play chess and think a few moves ahead, you can sort of see where I'm starting to go. So we'll read some of this and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it and talk about your identity. Genesis 12 here, the promise to Abraham. Now the Lord had said to Abram, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. This is a very important narrative. And while I take a drink, I'm going to let you think about that. And I want you to consider this question. Why is this narrative important to the subject at hand. New identities in Christ and new vocations. Why do you think? That's the big thing that he's leaving to go to a new land. He's leaving his father and his mother. Uh, In a sense, he's becoming his own person. Um, But he's also, going back to the family unit, he took Sarah with him, so there's there's still a family unit there. They are still a family unit, yes. It isn't just that Abram goes by himself, he takes his wife, all that they have, their entire household. Which is all of your livestock, all of your goods. He even took his brother's son with him. Took his nephew. Hey, come along with me. We're going to go on an adventure. So he leaves. But, But this is what I want you to consider with Abram. Firstly, why does God call him? It sounds like a hard question, but it really isn't. I'll ask it this way. What is the Lord's motivation for calling Abram? This is why it sounds hard, but it isn't. What is the Lord's motivation for doing any of the things that he does? People. It's always love. Love is the motivation that moves God to act. Love and faithfulness, but love primarily. Love moves him to make a promise to Abram, and faithfulness is what stems from love that causes him to keep that promise that he makes in love. So he calls Abram out of love. This is important because it's sometimes tempting to think that, well, maybe Abram was such a good guy that God saw him and thought to himself, boy, he's done a lot of really good stuff. He looks like a good guy. I'd sure like to have him on my team. But that isn't really how it goes. When the Lord calls, uh, he calls those who have no worth on their own. Now, you know that the Lord gives Abram a child, so I'm not spoiling anything for you here. But here's, here's the thing that's really important about that whole narrative one of the things Abram is how old 75. here he's 75 how old is he when he has his child yeah hey midweek do you remember my midweek students how old is abraham he is very old yes I think he's maybe just 100 or 99. But he's very old. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, oh, of course. Of course, this is kid stuff. (laughs) So he's old. Why does the Bible care to tell you that? Yes, exactly. Why do you think the Lord calls people like Moses, who's kind of a whiny baby. (laughs) Joshua, who is faithful but kind of a fraidy cat. Why do you think the Lord calls these people? Because it's very apparent that they are not working by their own power. I mean, by the time Moses goes back to Egypt, he's already an old man. Now, are you going to tell me that when old man Moses walks into your palace holding his staff and says to you, now you whippersnapper better let those people go, that you're going to be afraid of him? Absolutely not. That's not the point. You're not supposed to be afraid of Moses. Moses is supposed to look weak and frail. He's supposed to be a big whiny baby. He's supposed to complain and say, well, I can't talk very well. Can my brother talk for me, please? because then you know, boy, I don't know, that whole parting of the Red Sea business, that sure wasn't Moses doing that. How does a man as old as Abraham have his first child? How does a woman as old as Sarah bear a child? Your reason and your experience tell you it's impossible, it can't happen. And that's the point, because the Lord says, now you see, there's no doubt that I was the one who did this act, not you. So it matters. Abram is not a young man here when he's called out, and that's also important, 75. Now is the time when I want you to get up and go, because now you realize your strength isn't in you, it's in me. I'm the one who will give you the strength. This is the other thing. Does Abram believe on Yahweh? Does he believe on the Lord when he's in this land? When he's with all of his family? When he's in Ur of the Chaldeans? This is the real answer. It's a pagan country. It's pagan peoples. There is a man who is called out of the pagan culture and he believes the Lord. He is raised up. He is taken out. He is given a new identity even in being called away from his old life. Now you're tracking with me. You see where we're going here. Because you are Abram, out in Ur of the Chaldeans with your household gods, And the Lord says, eh, listen, I'm gonna gonna make you one heck of a deal. Those things aren't so great for you, but I'm pretty good for you. Leave all that behind and come with me, and this is my promise to you. Anyone who curses you, I'll curse them, because you're gonna be mine. I'll be the one to take care of you. And if they bless you, I will also bless you. I'll make sure whatever blessing they give you gives you happens. You're going to be taken care of. This is my promise to you. And through you will come the Messiah that will save the world. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here. A couple chapters to Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, he drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them four hundred years and also the nation whom they serve i will judge afterward they shall come out with great possessions now as for you you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried at a good old age but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kinezites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay? Here's your most important takeaway from all this. The act of making a covenant is a bloody mess, just like about everything involving any kind of sacrifice. There's a reason why Jesus becomes a bloody mess, and that's because covenant and sacrifice are bloody. To make the covenant, you cleave the animal into, and the two of you walk between the animals. It's a blood covenant. You walk between them. But what happens before they can walk between them before they can make a deal with one another he gets them all laid out and then a deep sleep he falls into a deep sleep and then he sees the burning oven and he sees a torch go in between the pieces now here are some things to think about what should a torch make you think of. Fire. Mm-hmm. Where do you see fire? Where else in scripture, excuse me, do you see fire? Nails. Pardon me? You say <laughs> well uh okay, yes. That is true. Heath Okay, the burning bush though, see? We're going the other way on fire. We're going to go up with fire, not down. (laughs) There's the burning bush. Good job. Think of something else. No, that's okay. Pardon me? Yes, okay. Where else? The pillar of fire. What does the pillar of fire do, John? It's after the flood and after the exodus. When they run away from Pharaoh, what gives them light and protects them? The pillar of fire. One more. There's one really, really big one. Think New Testament. Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost. Okay, I thought for sure Pentecost was going to be the first one. But you threw me some curveballs. Okay, Pentecost, holy fire. But if you look at all of these things, the burning bush the pillar, the fire in which the angel was. What is the common theme with this fire and light? Who is there? The Lord. The Lord is there. So, when you see a torch passing in between the animals, what should you immediately think of? Who is it that's making the covenant? It is the Lord that makes the covenant. What part does Abram have to play in his own covenant? None. There's no gentlemen's deals. There's no gentlemen's agreements. There's no handshaking. He just has to be there. He just has to be there to see that the Lord says, all of this I'm just going to do for you. You don't even have a part to play. Just sit there, look pretty, and receive everything that I'm going to give you. That's your new identity. And the promise that you have been given is the same promise that Abraham has been given. Uh, This is the other thing. What is accounted to him as righteousness? Is it the fact that he says, I believe in that, and the Lord says, good boy, you believed in that, and because you did that, now I'm going to make you righteous. It's not. It isn't that. It's not a good boy pat on the head. It's not your reward for saying, well, I think that was a pretty good promise, and I guess I'll take that to heart. He's accounted righteous for the content of the promise. And really, ultimately, the content of the promise is not what, but who? Jesus. Jesus. He looks at the righteousness of Christ and says, you cling to this righteousness, and for the sake of this righteousness, you yourself are also righteous. You are not what you used to be. You've been called out of that place. Now you're with me. Now you're righteous because of what I've done to you. Now, what does this sound like? Well, if it doesn't sound like baptism, I'm not doing my job. Because it ought to. Go to this place. Leave where you were before. That place is gone. There's nothing good for you there. Come here. I will make a covenant with you. I will do it all. I'll even do it to you. You don't need to shake my hand or anything. It's just going to be done. And then lastly, here it is. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, "'and I will make my covenant between me and you "'and will multiply you exceedingly.' "'Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, "'As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, "'and you shall be a father of many nations. "'No longer shall your name be called Abram, "'but your name shall be called Abraham, "'for I have made you a father of many nations.' I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." This is the finality of the transformation. You don't even get the same name. You know, the baptismal tradition used to be that the name of a child was kept secret, that you wouldn't talk about the name because when the pastor says at baptism, how are you named, that's the first time that your name is spoken, or that you would receive a separate name at baptism. That was your old name, but this is your new name because now you're baptized. Abram is no longer Abram. Now he's Abraham. And this wasn't in the readings, but I'll ask you, what is the sign of the covenant? To what can Abram point and say, I know that the Lord has made a sign with me because I, I have the sign? Circumcision. That there is a mark in the flesh that says, I'm not like anybody else. Me and my household belong to someone different. And when you read St. Paul, you know that circumcision prefigures baptism, a mark in the flesh. Circumcision isn't what you need anymore. That's something that prefigures the reality. But they are the same in this sense, that they mark you, that there is something physical on you. Baptism isn't just a splash of water that you wipe off and walk home after. Baptism is a brand into your flesh. You're like cattle. You're branded. There's a mark that you can't remove. This transformation has taken place. Now you have a new identity. And this identity informs the Christian life. St. Paul writes uh, to the Galatians all about how you don't you're not supposed to look for ways to sin now. You should Try to run away from that. You're not the same. You live differently. You're a new person. So here is what your work is then. Here is what your work is. According to your identity as a child yourself of the Lord. Your work in this new identity is first and foremost to love God and to receive him as individuals. This is the day when we talk about you as an individual. Tomorrow you're not. Because being a Christian really isn't about being an individual. It's about something that is corporate, a togetherness, the community, first of the household, and secondly of the outer body, the body of Christ. You're baptized, and yes, it is an individual thing. I don't take everybody all together up at the font. But in another sense, you're not an individual because when you're baptized into Christ, you become Christ. What is your identity? Well, it's no longer Jew or Greek. It's no longer slave or free. It's no longer male or female. You're all sons in Christ unto salvation, and you're all now part of the same body. And this is what will inform your actions within the spheres. How do you behave in the spheres? How do you behave in the household? Firstly, you behave as a child of God, which means this one thing to love God and to receive Him. And when you live in this station, when you fulfill this vocation, this baptismal responsibility, then everything else is informed for you. You are given direction in how to proceed. So this is the the final thought that I'll give you. It is in the regeneration and it is in the rebirth of baptism that the new child of God is able to see... And to recognize with these brand new eyes of faith that are given you in that washing and rebirth, given to see and to recognize the promises of God. You didn't know that they were there before, but now you're a new identity. Now you see that they're there. And you see these promises in every facet of life. In parenthood. In childhood. In the spousal relationship, in the sibling relationship, you see the promises of God. This is why you can say something like, you love your spouse or you love your children for the sake of Christ. Because when you look at them according to this new identity as children of God, you're not looking at them as Brian Ulrich you're looking at them as, hey, this is another child of God, redeemed by Christ. And you, you recognize this in every facet of life. And it is to these promises that the new man clings, like Abram. I don't know where the Lord is taking me, but he's made a promise and he's made a blood oath to me, so I'm going to go where he takes me because he's going to take care of me cling to the promises of God, cling to every facet of his mercy, and also these promises are the things by which you live. But it is only in this new identity that you're able to see those things. First, you have to be a child of God before you can be a child of man. Questions? Okay then that's where we'll leave it off today. And uh, we're gonna close with a devotion. So we'll take just a short little recess here if you need to use the restroom or throw away your, uh, your meal remnants. And then I have our devotion on the back, uh, on the little table there. So if you wouldn't mind returning that at the end of the night, that'd be really nice because we're gonna use the same thing tomorrow evening to close out as well. So we'll be back in probably about five minutes and we'll close with our devotion. And for you leaders just entering, the closing devotion is on the table, right at the back of the hall here. Yes, yes, good. This is, is everyone here? No. Okay, good. Okay, here's how the closing devotion is going to work tonight and tomorrow night. Uh, When you come upstairs, do what you just did and join your family as best that you can so we can do this like a whole bunch of little families all together. Okay? If you're in midweek, this is sort of familiar to you because this is very close to what we do in midweek. If there's a part that's in bold, that's yours to say. Say it loudly and clearly. Be confident in speaking your part because you are the ones that get to speak it, not me. Be proud of that. We're going to have just one little reading. Our verse of the day is here on the board. We'll speak that at the appropriate time. We'll confess the creed. We'll say the prayer, Lord's Prayer. We'll have a few other prayers. We'll have a hymn to sing too. The hymn is on the back side of your paper. And when we get to that part, I'm going to sing the melody of the hymn through one time so everyone can listen to me. And if you can't say the words, that's fine. You just sing along with the tune. And listen really closely to the tune, because if you were here for Vacation Bible School last time, and I'm looking at Silas, you remember that some hymns have little cha-cha-chas in them, and this one does too, so listen carefully for the cha-cha-chas, because it'll help you with the hymn, okay? Let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. The Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Amen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. To sing praise to your name, o Most High, To herald your love in the morning. Your truth at the close of the day. The verse of the day Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Here a reading from the book of Genesis, the 12th chapter. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west side and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on toward the south. La, 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 la. La 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 la. Oh, bless the house, whatever befall, where Jesus Christ is all in all. A home that is not holy His, how sad and poor and dark it is. Oh, bless that house where faith is found and all in hope and love abound. They trust their God and serve him still and do in all his holy will. Oh, Bless the parents who give heed Unto their children's foremost need And weary not of care or cost May none to them and have be lost Oh, bless that house, it prospers well In peace and joy the parents dwell, And in their children's lives is shown How richly God can bless His own. Then here will I and mine today A solemn promise make and say, Though all the world forsake his word, I and my house shall serve the Lord. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Lord of all power and might, author and giver of all good things, graft into our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion, Nourish us with all goodness, and of your great mercy, keep us in the same. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Visit our dwellings, O Lord, and in your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day, and I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong, and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Good to have you here. We'll see you all tomorrow.